There are fewer than 30 men in the world qualified to drive Formula One. A mere half dozen, perhaps, to win. At this moment, I'm inclined to think you're not one of them. I'm joined by Nasser Hamid, my co-host. This is podcast number 983, March 13th, 2023. Nasser. Thank you, sir. I say howling of the wolf after the season opener. The car and the concept is kaput. And James Ellison is now sailing back to Brackley. We shall explain gladly. Back to you, Chief. Thank you, Nasser. LCH says they didn't listen to me, dude. The reason why Mercedes cries about the W14 in public almost too much. They're pretty sneaky over there. Raikkonen off to Le Nascar. And so is Jensen Bouton. And this week's interview from the F1 Weekly Archives, we're going way back. And I'm bringing you today Jackie Oliver. This was originally aired in 2009, and it's another outstanding conversation with Nasser Hamid and history. So stay tuned for that. And I have to remind everybody that we do need your contributions to keep this program on the air. Just click on the Support F1 Weekly tab right there on the left side of the website. And I know deep down, you really want to. Nask, welcome to the studio. The excitement is buzzing. There's capitulation. There's a little bit of everything. And I can't believe the headlines that I'm seeing on the internet. I mean, we know that it's all fake news. But, I mean, Mercedes is going to back Fernando. Lewis Hamilton is going to Ferrari. I mean, (laughs) my God, we've only had one race. So, it's pretty exciting. I hope you're having fun with it. Sir, I am still very excited from a tremendous performance that I saw last weekend. And it was not even from the race winner. But I think everybody is super green with envy by what happened past Sunday. It is the talk of the town, still is. And we have to see. I'm just hoping that momentum continues in Saudi Arabia. Okay. And as far as the, the, past emperor of emperors of the world are concerned the silver arrow turned into a black arrow but they are still in the shadow of a red hot bull only mercedes winner from last season like you said just after one race george russell said red bull will win every race so that's a lot of confidence in his package his teammate is dazed and confused the team did not listen to him And like you said, rumors are now rising. LCH will be riding a prancing horse next season or maybe in two seasons. 
And that, I think, might not be a bad idea if he really wants one more championship than Schumacher. And then on the cool-down lap, when he gets championship number eight in Abu Dhabi in the year 2525, he can radio his ex-boss and say, Toto, it's called a motor race. And speaking of Mr. Wolf, he said, and I quote, We gave it our best shot all over the winter, and now we just need to all regroup and sit down with the engineers who are totally not dogmatic about anything. There are no holy cows and we need to decide what is the development direction that we want to pursue in order to be competitive to win races." End quote. And of course, as most time, Toto is right, there are no holy cows and the Mercedes W14 is definitely squealing like a pig, begging for more downforce and distance from the Hormel processing plant near Brackley. Now, I think even if they drop the zero side port concept, one has to wonder how long will it take before they can catch the tail of the Red Bull? Passing and winning races will be another project. And when you're going against Max, uh, it's, it's, it's a very painful project. What say you, Mr. Hose? Can they turn the ship around or will W14 remain Bismarck of the 2023 season, pounded from all sides all season long? Well, I think it's still going to be competitive in a lot of races. I mean, I'm not writing off Mercedes, nor is Christian Horner. Trust me. But the strangeness of how they're approaching all of this and the fact that they kept with the W13 because really... This is W13 2.0. They didn't really change enough. And once again, they didn't listen to their billion-dollar driver. It's confusing, and the circus craziness over there is unbelievable. I mean, I, I understand being the start of the, the Formula One season. You're on the back foot. You take it easy. You make some work. You stick together, and you fight, fight, fight. But... The drama that's come out of um, Mercedes has been intense. I know they don't like to show a lot of emotion. And I know Toto likes to keep all that more cerebral and more like Dr. Spock. So, yeah, very interesting. But I think they will become competitive. I mean, you know, they're still in the top five, folks. The problem is now we got Fernando sort of nudging his elbows around, and that's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And, of course, all the crying at, at Ferrari is unbelievable. You know, they're very emotional. And Leclerc is crying. He talked to the president of Ferrari. I, I'm telling you, there's a lot to watch. It, it's, it's truly a great soap opera. And you know their engineer, ex-engineer James Ellison, who used to work for Ferrari also, he left to work on the setting board project of Mr. Uh, Sir Ratcliffe, gentleman who owns the Enios uh, Petrochemical Corporation. So apparently Toto has sent him a text, baby come back. And I think this guy, uh, Mr. Elliot, who is responsible for the design of this car, of course Mercedes keeps saying they don't have a blame culture, which is great, but I think some uh, chairs will be moved around. And I will be very surprised if we still have a zero side port car um, after round three. Maybe 
in Jeddah, maybe won a race. But I think, you know, they're already talking about openly uh, that we will have a radical design change. You know, they cannot put six wheels on the car, nor they can they put a rocket engine. So the only thing they can do now is go with a conventional, normal air intake. And that should hopefully solve, if not, most of their problem. But one thing is for sure, okay? When you have a car like Red Bull and a driver like Max, the other competitors, of course they need a competitive car, be it Mercedes or Ferrari, but they also need a top-notch guy. Like a Lewis or a Super Machismo or a Charles Leclerc, it's not just every driver who can go and take the fight and beat Max Verstappen. That's not going to happen. Very true. Max is driving to the max every day, every minute of his life right now, and he's unbeatable. The only thing that's going to stop Max is a DNF. Or a Pirelli blowout like in Azerbaijan. Exactly. And you know what that does? That just helps Michelin every day. So Yes. I just can't believe it. But I can't believe we're only one race into this season and it's already this exciting. So I'm very, very happy. Yes, sir. And you know Martin Brundle, who himself raced in sports cars and Formula One and has done a tremendous job behind a mic. Um, he also has to say, has a say on Brackley's situation, as he has every right to do. And he said, and I quote, It seems to me that Mercedes went the wrong way in 2022 and refused to turn around. Even Lewis and Toto were openly expressing their disappointment at certain points of the weekend. And normally they only sing the praises of the teams at Brackley and Bricksworth. Bricksworth is where they make the Mercedes engines. It must be tense at the team right now. The quality is there. It just needs direction and oxygen to calm heads. They dogmatically turned the Mercedes into a late winning car last season but I don't see or hear the appetite for another year like that, unquote. You know, the another thing with big companies, Mercedes being a very large corporation, Toto may be head of the Mercedes-AMG Patronus Formula 1 team, but he still has to report to the board and the CEO, Mr. Ola Kalenius, who is originally from Sweden. You know, these people, I don't think, are too thrilled seeing what's happening right now with their car with the star. You know what I'm saying? Just like a few years ago, I don't think the board in Tokyo were, were having a lot of miso soup, how the uh, the GP2 engine project was going. So they have to do something to get back on winning track. And it will be very interesting to see what the ex-machismo of Mercedes, Lewis Carl Hamilton, will do. How long will he hang in there? To beat Max, you have to be either at Mercedes and have faith in them, or at Scuderia Ferrari. Hopefully they will finish their spaghetti one day and go racing all season long on a serious basis. Comprende? Si, amigo. It's, it's fantastic. And we haven't even talked about Alpine Ocon, that crazy guy that's not so friendly on the track. Hey, my God. And Hulkenberg, who's pretty tough right now, showing a lot of machismo himself. My God, we got the rookies, the three rookies that are suffering and will suffer for a little while longer. And Albon thinks the Williams is outstanding. Yeah, somebody called Hulkenberg Hulkenback. 
which I think was a good uh, cute name for him, the comeback king. And Sir Misery, uh, this Misery in Maranello also, and heads are rolling in Maranello. The disappointing performance of the Ferrari SF23 has claimed the first victim. This is the aerodynamic uh, guy, David Sanchez, uh, I believe he's French guy, and he was there at Maranello since 2012, and he's been moved around. He's still uh, with the company, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, I'm sorry, he's gone. The Inaki Rueda, the strategist, still with the team. And there are reports that Senor Sanchez or Monsieur Sanchez may be headed to, uh, I think it's uh, McLaren that was uh, mentioned. You know, there's an open door policy at McLaren for everyone, drivers, technician, mechanics. And he, for the time being, is being replaced by a gentleman named Diego Tondi. And there are reports, I'm sure you know this guy, Laurent Mekis, who looks Greek and has a Greek name, but is also French, that he will be also calling the local Maranello U-Haul office. He used to work for um, FIA also. He's been around Formula One uh, for a long, long time. I used to see him when he was at uh, Toro Rosso slash Alfa Tori, whatever they were called. So there's more upheaval going on. And, you know, this was very, very surprising. This Italian, very well-known paper, Corriere dello Sport, they are reporting that Fred Vassar is already fed up in his new role. Apparently, the Ferrari CEO, Signor Benedetto Vigna, is still pulling the strings. And his background is from semiconductor industry. He may be a chip of the new block, but his F1 experience and background is as impressive as the CEO of CBC Partners, Mr. Donald McKenzie. Now, this is the company that sold F1 commercial rights to Liberty Media. Their only motto was drive to make more money. With all the mayhem in Maranello, I think we will see victories for Ferrari this season. And you mentioned uh, Charles Leclerc requested a meeting with president of uh, uh, Fiat Group, uh, John Elkan, who is the grandson of Giovanni Agnelli. Of course, I don't know what was discussed, but I don't think he went there to see, to go and tell him that the tomato basil soup is not good in the Maranello Cucina. So something is brewing there. There's no doubt something is brewing there. I mean, Leclerc is desperate to get a winning package because he knows time is fleeting and he, you know, he wants to do it now. And I don't blame him. And to start the season off with a DNF, it sort of got stuck in his craw. Well, it's better to start with the DNF than end with DNF. And that can be where right now he has time. I mean, after one race, he's 25 points behind uh, Max, which is a lot of points. But you know what goes around comes around. I don't think Red Bull will win every race. They have what it takes. Just in one driver, Max, they have what it takes to win all the races. But, you know, things happen. A rain, uh, that could be some issue, um, you know, late caution and it may change the um, situation or pitch stop at the wrong time as happened in 2008 in Singapore. You know, these things happen and it's amazing no matter which way you turn the dice, the it's saying Nando, Nando. So who knows? And I think Nando might get a win this year. He has to. He has to take it to the next level and I think it's going to happen as well. I'm telling you, with Ferrari reliability issues, and they want to win, and they, it's hard for them to put that together. 
and Nando is in a reliable Mercedes-powered Aston Martin that's quick because they copied the Red Bull, which shows that the Mercedes engine in a Red Bull, it's still a, a fast car. <laughs> I can't wait to see the new design Mercedes because you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like a Red Bull and Christian Horner is going to have diarrhea all over the place. Yeah, that will be very, very interesting. And sir, next we have a limited time offer. High praise from Dr. Marco for Checo. Speaking to German publication Sport.de, the ex-F1 racer and Le Mans winner and 24-7 Dr. Feelgood, Helmut Marco, said about Max's teammate, and I quote, Sergio has survived two years alongside Max without being broken like most drivers. That is a great achievement. End quote. And he is absolutely correct. Challengers like Ricciardo, Sainz, Albon and Gasly all were unable to handle the heat in the Hell's Kitchen under Chef Max. Apart from Ricciardo, Checo is the only driver who won a race as teammate to Max Verstappen. If you look at the number of wins by Checo, the two years they have been teammates and the number of um, wins for Max, it's just basically no competition, as you would say. Poor Checo is in the same situation as Rubinho at Ferrari, with Michael as his teammate, or Gerhard Berger at McLaren with Senna as his teammate. While you can beat them now and then, but if you're trying to beat them to the championship, then all I can say is please download on iTunes the Perry Como Classic. It's impossible Ask a baby not to cry it's just impossible. Ironically, the songwriter is also Mexican. And sir, I'm sure it's one of your favorites. Bravo. Very good. Okay. Next, Williams, miles away from winning Wonderland. New man from Mercedes, James Wiles. He said, and I quote, I think certainly a realistic step for this organization is first and foremost make sure that every year we are just edging forward and not stationary. That has to be dream number one. Dream number two is we have to set up a sensible period of time in the future and its years where we can start to actually break into sixth, fifth, fourth, end quote. It is sad to see what has become of the team from very humble and difficult beginnings. Frank Williams took this team from a operating from a carpet warehouse and went on to win championships with Alan Jones, Keke Rosberg, Nelson Piquet, R. Alain Prost, Damon Hill, and Jacques Villeneuve. So that's a very impressive run of success for them. Another historical milestone for the team was victory in Barcelona for a driver from Venezuela, Senor Pastor Maldonado, which to this day is the last Grand Prix win. On a positive note, I am glad the team has not gone the way of Lotus and Tyrrell and Brabham and quite a few others. And you say Mr. Albon is very excited about it? Apparently, he thinks that their leap is as big as Aston Martin's leap. Yeah, they were down in the boondock, so they sure have made a very big jump, which is good. And, you know, their rookie driver, Amerikansky, uh, Logan Sargent, also did a very job, came very close to um, getting into the point. So I think they have a good, sensible 
lovey-dovey uh, driver relationship. It's not like Checo and Perez or Perez and Button. So I think they have the ingredients right now to keep moving from 7th to 6th to 5th. And of course, um, it will take some time. Are you missing Claire Williams, by the way? Every morning, sir. Every morning. Okay, that's good. And now we come to your favorite. I'm basically everybody's favorite these days. F1 flavor in Lainess car. Came back at Kota, the 20, 2007 world champion, will be racing at the Circuit of America in the NASCAR race for Justin Mark's Project 91 team. And Kota is the track where Kimi scored his last uh, F1 victory with Ferrari in 2018 and i don't know if you watched last year at watkins Glen, he crashed out but he was doing a pretty decent job in the nascar race but wait there's more jb jensen bouton world champion from 2009 will also be trying to hang him high in texas with rick ware racing he will also race in the Chicago street race and the road race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. You know what NASCAR is doing here? I think this is very, very good. And this is what IndyCar should be doing to increase their profile in this country where Formula One amazingly seems to be taking over as the number one preferred motorsports uh, in event. I think they should get people like Jensen Button, Kimi, uh, some high profile of Bruno Senna, Nicola Pross, and do a couple of, uh, bring them where they will be interested in. You know, a lot of these drivers will not do the Indy 500, but bring them to high profile events like Long Beach Grand Prix, uh, the uh, Toronto Indy Car Race, which is very popular, Road America, which is a fantastic track. So this is very good for uh, motorsports. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy this is happening. You know, this weekend we at Sebring, we have a WEC race and an IMSA race. So this is all beautiful. Are you happy about this kind of stuff, sir? I am. It's entertaining. We get to see Jensen Button crash. And uh, it'll be a lot of laughs. And not only that, but tire fire, caution, competition caution, and, of course, phantom debris. Yes. Um, and, you know, question is how long before we see Sebastian Vettel going around and round in circles either picking up trash from the debris or crashing into the wall at Martinsville. But it'll be nice to bring him also for a race or two. Now, NASCAR's chief operating officer, Steve McDonald, insists the series is not afraid of Formula One. Well, he doesn't need to be. Uh, they have a very large captive clientele here for, for that series, so no problem there. He said, and I quote, Ratings have remained cons consistently high over the past three or four years. We are not afraid of the rapid growth of Formula One's popularity in America, as we are pleased with the pace of our own progress. End quote. Do you think NASCAR needs to worry about uh, uh, Formula One? No. As long as we have Skull, we're going to be just fine. Yes, and 99 cents uh, hot dog at Dover, Delaware, it will be all right. And then, you know, the people who follow, and I've noticed this even in sports car racing, the diehard sports car fans, they are not interested in Formula One. And obviously, Formula One fans are not interested in NASCAR. So, you know, there's room for everybody. Okay, Mr. Rogers. Now we open the Bobby Fuller file. I fought the law and the law won. 
This is interesting. Back in January, Meyer Shank Racing won the Daytona 24-hour race with Acura, and drivers were Elio Castroneves, Simon Pagano or Simon Pagano, Colin Brown, and Tom Blomquist. Apparently, the crew chief Ryan McCarthy was at the 2005 U.S. Grand Prix, and at Daytona this year had a Michelin moment. He ran the car with lower tire pressure than recommended by Bibendo and then manipulated the data so they would not be caught by IMSA, the sanctioning body. But as they say, walls have ears, and the hanky-panky made it to the halls of sanctioning body. As far as the drivers are concerned, they will keep the win and the Rolex watches, but the penalty includes, it's a long list of penalties, I'll just mention a few of them. Loss of 200 team and driver IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship points. Loss of race prize money. Team receives a $50,000 fine. Team and basically the team owner, Mike Shank, placed on probation through June 30, 2023. Revocation of IMSA annual credentials and indefinite suspension of IMSA membership for team engineer Ryan McCarthy. Now, I don't know if this Ryan is taking the fall for the whole team, just like Ryan from another team took the fall in another motorsport musical drama called Lewis and the Ligate. Well, I'm not a crook. Any comments on the IMSA shenanigans, sir? Shocking, shocking, shocking. I was blown away. I mean, it's happened. I know these things do happen in the heat of competition. Okay, sir. Next, we come to Cancun over Crown. Antonio Perez, Papito of Sergio Perez, has declared that his son will be world champion one day. He also disclosed that after a successful meeting with Mexican businessmen, he is trying to bring a second Grand Prix to Mexico, this time in Cancun, a very popular resort south of the border. Sir, have you ever been to Cancun or... Uh, Acapulco. I have never been to Mexico. You have never been to Mexico? Never in my entire career life on this planet. Not even to Tijuana when you were a college student? Correct. I was sensible and intelligent. Which you still are, right? Indeed. Very good. Keep it that way, sir. Okay. We wish him and his Bambino all the best, but realistically, Cancun over Crown is more likely. With the right team, Checo can be world champion, but I am afraid it will not be with his current teammate. What say you, amigo? Yes, he'll be world champion in the Brazilian stock car race going up against Rubinho. Brazilian stock car racing is very, very competitive, just like the German touring cars, British touring cars, Japanese touring cars, and the Australian supercar series. And these are very tough series to win. Okay, sir. Um, sir, it's very sad news. This was very, very disheartening. You know, the son of FIA president, his name is Saif Soleim. I think he was in his early 20s. Uh, last week, he was killed in a road accident in Dubai. So that's very, very sad. And we would like to offer our condolences to Ben Soleim and his family. I'm sure you also read the story, sir. Yes, very, very sad. It's, it's tragic. Some F1 factoid from Autosport magazine. This was interesting. Drivers on the podium with most teams 
And top two surprised me. Top two are, but then if you take into account the era they were in, easy to understand. Top two are Sterling Maltz and John Surtees. Both made it to the podium with six different teams. Three drivers have five podium each with different teams. They are, you just mentioned Rubinho, Rubens Barrichello, Ricardo Patrese, and the recently promoted the Evergreen Super Machismo. The double world champion has been on the podium with Renault, McLaren, Ferrari, Alpine, and last Sunday with Aston Martin, the Jaime Bond. Okay, now sir, they say there's always something new out of Africa. Not sure if this one is. The last African Grand Prix was at South African Grand Prix, I should say, was at Kailami, a suburb close to South Africa's largest city, Johannesburg, in 1993. Michael Andretti was in that race. Schechter's nephew Warren was at the heart of negotiation to bring Kailami back to the F1 calendar, with rumors reaching the high point in summer of 2022. Jody Schechter, the 1979 world champion, said, and I quote, I was an inside part of it. My nephew worked on it for six years. It was that close. F1 came over to sign. He had got government backing, some of the wealthiest people in South Africa behind it. Everything was in place and the guy from Kailami got greedy. He went from 500,000, I'm assuming it's dollars, to 2 million and he wanted to take the whole thing over. Just as soon as F1 left, he changed the whole thing completely. The government realized there was a fight and withdrew, and that was the end." end quote. And that brings us to a very nice tune by Italian singer Toto Cutugno. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy Africa. You know, I never realized that a world so incredibly far away as Africa could be so close to me. Look where we are right now, on this pitiful little piece of grass, suffocated by a sea of cement, oppressed by all the traffic. Look at the people running, shouting, like they've all gone mad. You know, I think I just might go back to Africa. P.S. Folks, we just can't get enough of super machismo. Nando has become the first driver to have driven a car powered by all hybrid engine manufacturers. The only question I have, I have is, why did he not call the Renault engine GP3? GP3? Ah! Mr. Rogers, you must be happy of all his achievement in every which way.
It's pretty impressive. Those are really hard records to accomplish, to drive every existing power plant and to be on a podium for all those teams. Dude, that is a well-rounded, top-notch world champion. That he is. That he is. And sir, some good news. You know, I'm very happy about this and I hope what has been agreed in black and white comes true on Wednesday, which is March 15th, day after tomorrow. From the day of recording, I am taking a day off and I'm going to Sebring on Wednesday and through the good offices of the PR person at the Toyota VEC team, I have set up an interview with Pascal Vassilon, who is the team leader and used to be at Michelin and Renault before that, Kamui Kobayashi, Jose Maria Lopez, and thanks to Colin Collis Chavsky's team, let's hope this also works out, they've also given me a time to come and interview world champion Jacques Villeneuve. So I am very, very happy. This is what I live for. Hopefully we can wrap up all these interviews on Wednesday and share it with the wonderful F1 Weekly Familia globally. Outstanding, Nasser, my hero, Jacques Villeneuve. Now those were exciting times, 96, 97. I mean, he just went into Formula 1 and said, yowza, 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 on pole on his first race. I love those kinds of stories. You know, that's the kind of stuff I was hoping Zanardi would do in Formula One, but hey, que sera, sera. So anyway, we're going to go ahead and get into the Jackie Oliver interview, and I'm going to use the original intro from Nasser Hamid. And yes, sir, thanks to Mr. Peter Brazier and the European Support Vehicle for showing me the uh, operation. His business, where the team used to be now, is a like a public storage place, like here in America. And it was very kind of Mr. Oliver to give me the time. And, of course, Mr. Brazier was also there. So uh, and I'm glad you're putting these interviews. I'm sure we have a lot of new listeners, so it will be probably first time they are listening to it. And Jackie Oliver raced here in America, raced in Formula One. He used to work with Don Nichols and the stories there. So let's get it on. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, this is with Jackie Oliver. And people like Jackie Oliver make motor racing such a fascinating sport. He was born in Essex, England on August 14, 1942, and his racing career started in 1961 at the Villa Fomini. After driving for Lotus in Formula uh, 2, he replaced Jim Clark as teammate to Graham Hill in 1968 after the Hockenheim tragedy. Oliver, Oliver qualified on the front row of his home Grand Prix at Silverstone and was leading when the car broke down. In 1969, driving the beautiful John Wire Golf-sponsored uh, GT40, he won the Le Mans 24-hour race in the Sebring 12 hours. In 1971, he won the Daytona 24 hours in a Porsche, which he shared with the Mexican driver Pedro Rodriguez. In 1974, he won the Can-Am Championship, driving for Don Nichols' shadow team. He would drive in Formula 1 for the same team and later became involved in management of the shadow team. At the end of 1977, Oliver left Shadow and started his own Formula 1 team called Arrows. Some of his drivers have included Ricardo Patrese, Gerhard Berger and Eddie Cheever, and team also had sponsors as varied as UF, USFNG, Ranio Ceramike and Warsteiner. Uh, this conversation took place last month at his business, Arrows Self Storage Limited, which is based in Bletchley, Milton Keynes, same place where the uh, F Formula 1 team was uh, based in 
we did this interview in his team uh, meeting room. My sincere thanks to Mr. Oliver for his time and to Mr. Peter Brazier for making this possible. Thank you. Okay, I'm here in England with Jackie Oliver, Grand Prix race driver, team owner and Le Mauvener. Mr. Oliver, how are you today? Very well, nice to see you. Nice to talk to your uh, your group through your podcast in California. Uh, before we talk about your great involvement in motor racing, can I get your uh, thoughts on the Britain's newest world champion and the manner which it was achieved last lap thrill in Brazil? Well, I mean, I know Ron Dennis very well because we shoot together and, of course, we were colleagues together uh, when he was with McLaren and uh, I was with Arrows. So uh, we still see each other on a social basis and, of course, we were colleagues together in racing for many years with the Aris team and the McLaren team. So I still see him, and the last time I saw him was uh, a few weeks after that uh, last lap uh, attempt. So I have two stories. I have the story from his chief engineer, which I also see, who's now gone to NASCAR, um, Steve, Steve Hallam. Hallam, and I got his view of what it was like on the last lap. And then a few days afterwards, I had um, uh, Ron's view of what it was like on the last few laps and it was all to do uh, with uh, the rain and of course Formula 1 teams now are even more sophisticated than the days that I was involved in them and they have uh, a man for everything right? and they've got a man that looks at the weather forecast and the weather forecast comes as a weather map on the screen back in the garage in different colours where it's coming from and its intensity and it's reasonably accurate the closer you get to the event, uh, like uh, 10, 15 minutes, the more accurate it is if you're doing it hours before. They knew it was going to rain. They knew where it was going to come in from. And there was a prediction within minutes of its intensity. The trouble is, the intensity was a little bit late in coming. And as the story goes, Ron was on the microphone to the weatherman saying, where is this effing rain? You promised it to me two laps ago. <laughs> well, it did come. It turned from green, which is very mild, to a little bit more purple, but only on the last lap. And, of course, the whole world saw uh, the result of that uh, slight delay in the uh, predictions about the weather. But it came in enough time, and we have uh, a British World Championship because of it. But I can imagine, from the conversations I've had with all my friends at McLaren, the intensity of the discussion about it on that last lap to be fifth. The interesting analysis of that is, is of course, that Lewis was not given a free rein to run the race himself. He was told what you've got to do is come fifth. And in sport, planning to come fifth, there's always the unpredictable that can cause the problem. The difference between McLaren and Ferrari on that last race was that Massa had to win. So he went out to win, and he did win. McLaren told Lewis to go out there and come fifth, and he did. Now, Britain has produced more world champions than any other nation. Uh, why is there such a strong passion for uh, motor racing here? I'll give you an example. I was at the very first A1GP race, uh, September 2005, a brand new series, basically after the season was over. 60,000 people showed up, and I was with a friend of mine from New York. He also could not believe how big, how full the parking lot was. What is the reason why British people are so passionate about motor racing? Well, the history goes back. It's a traditional thing here. Uh, if, if you take the, the English sort of invented most things, the Scots invented golf, 
but they don't have the best golfers. The Hooray Henrys in the, the late 1800s decided they want to ski down a mountain in, in Switzerland, but we don't have any uh, successful skiers. The reason why we have successful drivers <coughs> is because the industry, right, after the Second World War, here developed. They had lots of airfields right, that the RAF had abandoned in the, in the 50s, and they were ideal to turn into racetracks. Not all of them, but most of them. The English decided that what they should do is they should race on those uh, old airfields, and as a result of racing on them, they wanted to make their cars quicker. So an industry built up of tuning, right? and tuning turned into development, right? development turned into production of racing cars. So, I mean, if you want a successful racing car now, especially during the 80s, the only place to come was the UK. So, not only did you develop an industry, you developed a whole group of drivers that were driving race cars through the 50s, 60s and the 70s. Right? And that still applies today. So, you end up by producing a lot of young people that are capable uh, with uh, their skills. And as a result, they get hired by the top teams, a lot also which are British, right, or British-based. So it's not uh, the wit of man that you're going to produce more champions. Right? Interestingly enough, Brazil has produced a huge amount of champions, and they don't come from that era. So why are a lot of Brazilian drivers that are very good drivers? Is it to do with temperament? Interestingly enough, a lot of the young British Brazilian drivers that think that they can drive racing cars you know, end up coming here right, and doing Formula 3 or Formula Junior or A1GP. So they come to this country in which to hone their skills and as a result get hired, as Massa did, with Ferrari. You mentioned your, you have a lot of friends at McLaren and your friends with John Dennis. You know, I, I know if I talk to Ron for legal uh, reasons or for whatever, I'm, he may not be able to give me the answer. Let's see what I can get from you. You know, when they had this problem with Alonso, first I'd like to get your take on that. One thing I'm always curious is, it's, it's been reported many, many times that in um, Hungary, uh, he threatened Ron Dennis that if you don't slow down Lewis Hamilton, I'll go and spill the beans to FIA. Uh, can you comment on these two things, please? Well, racing drivers are very competitive individuals. And the best ones are the ones that are extremely competitive right, and will take their competitive advantage further than perhaps they should do. So if you want a successful driver, as Alonso is, you've got to expect that sort of treatment. It's how you handle them is probably the key thing. Alonso uh, was too aggressive in his approach and tried to keep his closest competitor in Lewis Hamilton right, down. So perhaps uh, he reaped that harvest uh, by doing that. And... Maybe the handling of the whole affair, right, in retrospect, could have been, been different and kept that very good union together. If there was a little bit more give and take by both Alonso and by the team, maybe uh, Alonso and Hamilton would still be driving for McLaren. And what a fantastic combination it would uh, create. But human nature being what it is, it didn't. It erupted, right, and there was a lot of animosity and once you get to that stage, then there has to be a parting of the way because it would damage the team and its progress too much. 
Uh, going back to your racing career, uh, what was your first connection to motor racing? Uh, was there any racing in the family? How did you catch the motor racing bug? Uh, my father had um, a passion for what was what is now turned as supercars. In the 50s, he used to buy Mercedes 300 SLs, uh, Maseratis, Ferraris. They were always in the garage. He was always changing them. And, of course, as a very young boy, I used to drive with him in the car. Uh, in fact, even before I was 16, I used to uh, take the cars out of the garage at night when he was asleep um, and meet my older friends on an arterial road in South End in Essex, just uh, north of London, and drive them before I was even old enough to. So uh, I always thought he never knew. I never crashed them, so he never found out. But I suspect he did know and was waiting for the phone call. So, I mean, if you start off like that in the 50s doing those things, it's natural that a father that had got uh, four daughters, uh, all older than me, what he wanted a son for. It turned out that his son ended up as a race driver when perhaps he wanted his son to be a race driver and take over the family business. But, of course, once you introduce a young person to motorsport, then the business doesn't seem such an exciting activity to undertake. Fortunately, the business of racing did. It could easily have not have done, but it did. So what was your first real introduction to motor racing where you said, OK, I want to be a racing driver? My father bought me a racing car. When I was 17, we made one. It wasn't very good. So I said, uh, you know, how about a Marcus? A lot of club racing in the... Uh, early 60s in England. So the little Marcus was a sports car. That led on to something being better. So I said, well, look, you know, we've been quite successful with the Marcus. What about um, uh, a Lotus uh, Elan? And the Lotus were producing road versions hotted up for racing called 26R, uh, Lotus Elan. I took it to Crystal Palace and I beat the works team. When you start to do that, the works team look at its competitors and they say, well, perhaps we should have this young guy driving our works car, right? because he's quick. <clears throat> Let's give him a contract, because we want to sell more 26Rs to the punters. So if we've got a quick young English driver, it's going to stimulate that, that, that market. And as a consequence, of course, I had a contract with Lotus, driving their Formula 3 car, driving their Lotus Cortina when Jimmy Clark wasn't available, driving their Formula 2 car. And when Jimmy Clark uh, had that tragic accident in the works former two Lotus at Hockenheim, I was effectively the third driver of Lotus Team Lotus. So they stuck me in the Formula One car. Quite a few drivers mm. did not go to Lotus, and I was talking to Tony Brooks yesterday, and he also cited the how many crashes Lotus cars would have. Did you have any concern about that? And, of course, motor racing was very dangerous in those days. And how did you find Colin Chapman in your dealings with him? Well, I didn't deal with Colin Chapman until I came into the Formula One team. <clears throat> I dealt with uh, all the engineers uh, that were there. And, of course, they were a great supporter of, uh, of me. But it was Colin that would make the decisions. The opportunity to drive the Formula One team was not the best opportunity for me because it was um, jumping in the deep end with Colin Chapman as the team leader that had just lost his best driver and his, and his best friend. So uh, there wasn't the sort of help that uh, McLaren were giving to Lewis Hamilton in all areas. It was, lad, you're now driving a Formula One car, and the only 
the most important thing in, in motorsport is Formula One. Here's the car, get on with it. Um, the first race I did with him was at Monte Carlo. I'd qualified mid-grid at a very difficult circuit that I'd never been to before. Um, I'm sitting on the grid. The only bit of advice I got was Colin sticking his head in the cockpit uh, a minute or so before the start and said, lad, in the whole history of Grand Prix racing at Monte Carlo then, never more than six cars have finished this race. So you get your first worst in midpoint. Off you go. Not the sort of thing that's going to have much impression on me. The words go in one ear and out the other when you're in the cockpit just before the start of your first Formula 1 race. Consequently, I hit um, uh, Bouge McLaren and Scarfiotti coming out of the tunnel on the first lap because they'd collided and blocked the track. I had There was nowhere to go. It was either the rock face on one side or the harbour on the other because I had no arm code during those days. Right? I chose the rock face right, to squeeze through, took all the wheels off and walked back to the pits and got fired by Colin Chapman. Fortunately, Jim Enderwright, the team manager, said, look, he's a good lad. Right. We, we don't think it was really his fault. Give him another chance. So I got my ass back in the car again for the Belgian Grand Prix and finished fifth. But it was a roller coaster with Colin during that period. It was a, he thought it was a university motorsport. I mean, I drove everything for Colin. And, uh, and that led me on to signing a contract with BRM, uh, for the 1969 season. So, I mean, it was my leg up, but it was a difficult baptism of fire for a young driver. Uh, not the sort of opportunity that young drivers now, young drivers, they get a test contract with the team, they get ingratiated into the team, they get to know the car, they get a lot of psychological help, a lot of media attention, um, coaching, etc., etc. In the days that I started, it was, here's your crash helmet, no seat belts, there's the car, off you go. Talking of young drivers, do you think it was easier for a 15-year-old who was talented in your age to get into racing or this day and age where everything is so commercialized and managers are hanging around at go-kart tracks? It was easier because there were less competition. You know, because of, of my father's help, I was one of very few drivers that were driving lots of cars during the uh, late 50s and early 60s. So when an opportunity comes along with someone that hasn't had that three or four years grounding, then you know you might have a bit of talent, but also you've got a lot of familiarisation. Now, right, you've got 500 young guys that have been driving go-karts since they were seven. So the competition's much greater to get very few opportunities. There are not a lot more opportunities now in Formula 1, even though uh, you've got 18, 19 races, right, than there were in the, in the 50s or the 60s. Hi, I'm Enzo Ferrapaldi, and you guys are listening to F1 Weekly. Okay, in your driving career, what was the biggest achievement for you or moments that you're most proud of? That's a very difficult question because um, I was very successful in sports cars. Uh, won a lot of races with Pedro Rodriguez and with Jackie X. The trouble with sports car racing then, it uh, was not a great demonstration of a driver's ability because the cars were fragile, so you always had to drive them with a little off the pace so that they would last the distance, whether it was a 12 hours of Sebring, 24 hours of Le Mans that I won, or a thousand Ks of Spa. You know, you had to be a little sympathetic with the equipment. And then it wasn't a driver's championship, it was a manufacturer's championship. So uh, apart from having to share with the driver, 
some who you got on with, some who you didn't. I got on very well with Pedro Rodriguez. He was a great teammate. We, we, we enjoyed each other's company. And we were driving together with BRM as well. So it was, although it was most, most successful in terms of victories, it was not something that I found particularly satisfying for those reasons. Formula One kept on finishing third, um, led a few races, cars kept on braking, but I never won any Grand Prix, so um, that was uh, an opportunity missed. There's always reasons why. I tend to look back and think I was unlucky, like at the British Grand Prix I led, because it's a circuit I knew under that difficult period with Colin Chapman. But again, the car broke, led many races with BRM because uh, it was a fragile car. Um, but I think looking back at all my Formula 1 career, I don't think I was really good enough to be a world champion. I think I was good enough to have won the old race when uh, things were going my way. I knew the circuit or that uh, all my biorhythms were together on that day so that I could put, put, put a performance in with a good car. So I think probably the, the race that uh, was most satisfying was um, with the Formula 2 Lotus. Although I finished second, uh, I, should have, um, I should have won that race. And um, also the Formula 5000 series that I did in the United States, where there was Andretti and the Anza Brothers. I did it for three seasons. Uh, I never won any races there and kept on finishing third in the championship. But it was a hard fought. Uh, series, of which I think uh, I drove quite well with the shadow team. So there's never only one race that, that comes out that was my best race. Probably Le Mans 24 hour, because if you look at Indy 500, Le Mans 24 hours, Formula 1 World Championship, they're all things that look very good in a book uh, that you won. So I suppose from the media perspective, the Le Mans 24 hour but of course it was shared with the full GT40 with Jackie X. So it's not something you can say is the best race that Jackie Oliver did because there were other factors involved in it. Now, recently you were, uh, there was a story about you interview in Motorsport magazine. A couple of things from that uh, story were very interesting and I'd like to get your take on it. Le Mans victory, Henry Ford sent you a car uh, present and you were very thankful and then later he sent you an invoice. Can you tell a little bit about that, please? Oh, yes. I mean, Ford Motor Company produced a number of replicas of uh, performance cars in their period. And the best one that they produced was the latest uh, Ford GT. It was a limited production of a 1,000 cars or 2,000 cars, I can't remember. And uh, it was um, at Festival Speed at Goodwood when the car had gone into production. Ford Edsel came up and uh, uh, um, was... Uh, introduced to me by uh, Lord March and the then chairman of uh, Ford Europe, Roger Putnam, who I knew very well because Roger was a junior salesman at Lotus in the 60s when I was there. So we know each other from period. And uh, he said, uh, Edsel, this is Jackie Oliver, one of the more GT40 in the iconic uh, golf car. He should have one. And he said, I absolutely agree with you. Right, let's put him on uh, one of the first cars that come into the UK. So I thought, oh, terrific. I, try, I subsequently tried the, the prototype uh, a year before and was very impressed with it. Did a video for Ford, did uh, a number of interviews about the car and sung its praises because it was as a sports car for the, for the money. Yeah. was 
as close as you get to a GT40, but it had a lot of comforts. It was very easy to drive, it had good power, had a fantastic gearbox. So, um, all leading up to taking delivery of the first car. When I got the car, I, I got an invoice, which was a bit of a surprise. £128,000 worth, pleased with the car, paid the invoice, kept it for three years, did 1,200 miles in three years in the car, because the wife had nowhere to put her big handbag. Great car. Not very useful. Couldn't get my golf clubs in it. But it was uh, what I call a face place car. Great car that would start up when you got in it, no matter how long it had been sitting in the garage. Never had any problems with it. Super performance. But it was a face place car because it looked so great. And um, I sold it six months ago for less money than I paid for it. <laughs> At least you had fun. Um, the other thing I read, um, please correct me if I'm uh, wrong, when you were racing, team members and crew members, they gave you a nickname, Noddy. Mm. What was the reason for that? It's a habit that I had and started right from my early career, and I carried through all my racing career, that uh, to get away from the, and to settle the nerves before the start of the race, I used to get my head down and have a little nap. And uh, in my latter career, I used to be able to do it in the motorhome. But in my early career, uh, I used to find a place in the back of the garage uh, to sit down and close my eyes. And uh, in club racing, the friends I had uh, helping me with the car put a number plate on the car called Noddy because I used to nod off to sleep before the start of the race. You mentioned Shadow, Don Nichols. When was the first time you got in touch with him and how was he as a person to deal with? Well, Don got in touch with me. <clears throat> I was driving the uh, Titanium Corporation of America's car in Can-Am, the TI-22, with Peter Bryant. I was asked to drive the car. I drove it for them for two seasons. In the second season, Don came to me and said, would you drive the Shadow? I said, uh, well, thank you very much, Don, but not that little wheeled car. I think uh, your design team has gone about it the wrong way. It's not the solution. If you're going to uh, build and race cars, you need to have an element of engineering from the United Kingdom, because that's where the industry is. And uh, a relationship was born where I drove the car, and he started to produce a car in a shop with some British mechanics and Peter Bryant, the designer. That relationship grew to getting Tony Southgate as a designer, and we eventually won the championship in Can-Am with a Tony Southgate designed car uh, built in the UK. And uh, my love of Formula One, Don and I together got the backing from Universal Oil Products in which to produce a UOP shadow in Formula One, which I drove the first one with George Former. Because I got involved in putting that package together with Don, uh, I did less and less driving and more and more managing, which led on to other things with the Irish team. Uh, not with Don, as some you know, partnerships sometimes that we had uh, dissolved for one reason or another. And my partnership with uh, Don dissolved at the end of 1977 uh, because he wanted to uh, run back to the States when we lost UOP. I wanted to stay here in the UK with the operation that would uh, uh, put together uh, with Shadow. Uh, he didn't. He went back to the States and I stayed here uh, and called it Arrows. 
UOP Shadow was a very famous uh, association and you know program, just like the GT40 in sports car racing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how the UOP sponsorship came about, please? <clears throat> well, when Don asked me to drive with that little wheeled car, I said, "Well, you're not only going about it the wrong way from a technical point of view; you're also going about it the wrong way from a financial point of view." My background is getting a technical department to build the cars with UK expertise and then finding the money through sponsorship in which to pay for it. So I said what we should do is you've got an American team to try and find an American sponsor to back this. I've got some experience of it, not a lot, right? but what we ought to do is to go out there in the marketplace together right? and, uh, and, and propose such a program. We did. We found UOP on the umbrella of uh, UOP saying that uh, lead-free fuel is not dangerous to your car. There's no need to put lead in fuel. It was a program that UOP liked because they could prove that a racing engine could run on lead-free fuel, so therefore it must be safe uh, for the, your road engine. And they bought the program, and they and they not only bought it in the United States, but for Formula One, they 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 rolled out that uh, uh, marketing campaign through to Formula One. So uh, that's how it came about. It came about with Don not spending his own money on racing, right? but, but what he'd started with his own funds right, to be augmented in the manner that I just described. Now, at, the, at this time when you were partners with him running the team, who would make decisions on drivers? Alan Reese and myself. I got a team manager in in which to run the program here. I, I knew Alan as a driver, and I knew him as a driver and a team manager with the Winkleman team, with Jochen Rint in Formula 2. And he ran a very good operation, uh, a very professional operation. So I said, Alan, would you be team manager for the Shadow team? And uh, he said, yes, I would, and helped me set up a facility here in the UK in which to design and build the cars, and he said he would. And that partnership endured uh, with us together uh, in Arrows for some 22 years. What was the reason, main reason, and again, I'm speaking as a racing fan who get information from the media, uh, and who was, who and when it was decided that you folks will leave you, Tony Southgate, um, Shadow, and go to Arrows, form Arrows? <coughs> well, what happened was, is that I wanted uh, in, the, the, the thing is with, um, whenever a business or an individual is in financial stress, they tend to run home. Uh, with Lost Europe, um, I'd found some other sponsors in Europe to help with the Formula One team. But Don wanted to uh, hive down back to the United States. I wanted to hive down and back to the UK. So there was a, a split in the difference. So I left the organization and said, I think that's a mistake. I think uh, we should produce cars for whatever series we're going to do, Formula One particularly, here in the UK and close the operation down in the United States. It's not something that Don wanted to do for all the obvious national reasons. So we parted company, and I bought a factory, right? hired the people from Shadow, which understandably right, really upset him. Right? I left, left quietly, and said to guys, I'm going to do it now, I'm going to do it um, here in the UK, do you want to come and work for me? So um, quite aggressive, but not unusual. And, of course, uh, it upset Don particularly. He thought it was 
disloyal and uh, started uh, legal action in which to try and uh, stop me from doing it. Um, he didn't succeed. He tried to carry on with Shadow, which, uh, with the departure of so many employees, was a task that he succeeded but not successfully with. And I went on to be uh, reasonably successful. They say time heals everything. Have you ever been in touch with him? Do you folks, folks talk now? No, no, that was an acrimonious split because I had singly-minded decided that I wanted to carry on. Couldn't carry on with the shadow name, which I would have liked to have done, with Don. So I carried on on my own with the Arrows name. And I think um, he he felt that was uh, inappropriate. Um, he fought quite hard in the English courts in which to try to bring me down. Nearly did. And I think if two partners that had, had quite a successful arrangement with Shadow together go through that sort of battle then uh, any friendship or good feeling is uh, left as sediment at the bottom of the jar. So we don't send each other's Christmas cards anymore. From the days that Arrows uh, Formula 1 team, what were some of the high points? And you have this Warstana-sponsored car which was leading the, almost won the South African Grand Prix with Patrese. How was that feeling and what other moments really that you're proud of? We survived. My partner Alan Rees and I were different individuals. There was a good balance, it was a good partnership that still survives today. But I suspect that uh, in concentrating on surviving in a very difficult industry, we managed to contest more Grand Prix than any other Formula One team has ever done and never won a Grand Prix. So obviously our survival skills were either muting the success that we could have achieved. Maybe there were moments when we should have risked more with what we had in our hands and maybe we would have gone on to have been a successful team. We clearly didn't take those moments, and as a result, we soldiered on as a mid-ranking team for some 25 years. Interestingly enough, when I sold the team and left it to my partner then, Tom Walkinshaw, he took the bold approach in which to make the team successful, which was, of course, for his demise. Not only did the team go, but his bold approach took all his other supporting industries, which were in TWR, down with him as well. That could have been me, or it could have meant that I would have been successful and been like McLaren. You never know in life. I have no regrets. The team has a position in history in Formula 1, which I'm reasonably proud of. I'm sorry that it's no longer on the grid, which perhaps it should have been. And, you know, fans like me appreciate people like you who make motor racing and Formula 1 what it is. Uh, finally, how about a message for F1 Weekly listeners, please? I think anybody that um, follows motorsport or participates in motorsport, the most important element of motorsport is its top echelon, and that is either NASCAR, Indy, or Formula 1. Everything else is a pyramid that leads to that. So continue to support those two. The only admission to that, which I think is sad, is that there is no World Sports Car Championship. There used to be. It used to match Formula 1 in the uh, 60s. But it's been decimated by um, the efforts of Equiston and Mosley to the pinnacle of Formula 1. I would have liked to have seen Equiston cultivated both a successful Formula 1 championship for drivers and a successful manufacturer's championship for sports cars. I think uh, I think that would have been a well-balanced world stage for professional motorsport. But I understand that in doing so, of course, you can divide the money equally between the two. Instead of that, you have a very rich sport in Formula One and a homegrown American sport 
which had two championships, which has caused its demise, which perhaps is the reasons why Eccleston has been successful with just one. Uh, as in all things, you have a, an idealistic view, but quite often the realistic view in compromise is the one that ends up succeeding. Thank you very much, sir. Jackie Oliver, thank you for joining F1Weekly.com.